everyone and welcome back to On Track, Off Course, the racing welfare podcast. I'm Lauren Braithwaite and I'm here again with Tina Scargill. This week we are focusing on addiction, um, a topic that's been in the press repeatedly over the last few months um, and something that we provide a lot of support with at Racing Welfare. Yeah, addiction can be absolutely devastating, not only for those who are dealing and struggling with addiction, but also for those around them, you know, their families and friends and whoever's supporting them, employers. So we really wanted to shine a light on this topic and and talk to people who are involved and who have been affected by addiction. Yeah, and just as with all of the things we talk about, just keep that conversation open and, and happening to try and make sure that people do feel that they can reach out to us for support. Yeah absolutely and we have seen that over the last year there has been an increase in people coming forward for support from race and welfare. We've seen a 23% increase year on year in people supported for addiction and we've seen a 259% increase in interventions which is casework so that's really interesting to see that that there has been an increase in support from race and welfare. Yeah, and um, there was a feature recently in the Racing Post, wasn't there, about um, one of our beneficiaries who we supported with alcohol addiction. Yeah, with Josh, and it was it was in the Racing Post recently, and it kind of highlights exactly what racing welfare can do for people who are struggling with addiction. So, you know, we can fund rehab and temporary accommodation and taxis to and from treatment. So it's really important that if anyone's listening who is struggling with addiction or is supporting anyone Mm -hmm. who's struggling with addiction, that, you know, you reach out for support and come and talk to Racing Welfare because there's always help there. I think that's really important to note, isn't it, that this can be so tough for those people supporting Mm the addict and we're here for them as well so we've got a wide range of guests coming on to talk to us today about this haven't we so we're starting with Kieran Schumark who whose story has been widely reported but who was just so incredibly open and sort of a bit more wide-ranging than what we've heard from him before and sort of talking about the current issues that have been documented so much with jockeys and stable staff and just giving his views on that which was really interesting to hear. Yeah like you say it's been well documented and but he talks with such confidence and grace and sort of self-awareness about his story and it's interesting that that's part of his process of recovery as well is like you just said before you know getting people to talk and being Mm. open about these things so it's interesting to hear from him. Yeah, and then um, we also speak to Joe Devereux, who is a clinical lead for Care First, who partner with Racing Welfare in bringing racing support line to the industry. And she just gives some reassurance, really, around what happens if you call the line with an addiction issue. Yeah, she makes you feel all warm, doesn't she? She's yeah. got such warmth. <laughs> She's such a caring, lovely lady. And I just thought, yeah, we need like we need to get this out to people that you know the people on the other end of the phone when you call are just human beings and they are there to help and they really do care and that you know they want you to come forward and talk to them so there shouldn't be any shame or stigma around Mm. calling race and welfare support line yeah and then we also speak to ruth croft who's a youth engagement manager from turning point and um you know the conversation with kieran and with joe were both 
brilliant. Um, but I think Ruth, for me, um, just puts that wider view on it that we so often miss and don't talk about. I think there's been a lot of discussion about the <clears throat> sort of recreational drug use in the industry as if it's sort of just a bit of fun that we shouldn't do because it's against the rules, but there's no kind of discussion around the wider impact of that and sort of hearing from Ruth on the impact on young people, on their families, involvement with county lines, it's painful stuff and, um, you know, it needs talking about more, really. Yeah, it's something that Kira mentions is that, um, you know, it's it's addiction that is the issue. People are in deep and and it's important that people are educated about addiction. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's really important. That comes across with Ruth. Yeah, that's it from our first guest. So I'm delighted to say we're joined now by Royal Ascot winning jockey Kieran Schumark. Kieran, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. How are you? Yeah, really well, thanks. Yeah, thank you for having me. Have you been riding out this morning? Uh, nowhere this morning. No, um, wouldn't usually ride out on a Monday. So uh, we had a nice day off yesterday, a rare Sunday off. So um, no, I had a nice uh, relaxing morning. And Kieran, you must be feeling quite excited at the time of recording this because you've got Lady Bothorpe going for the Group 1 lock-in on Saturday. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, she was very impressive in the Dahlia Stakes um, last weekend and she's definitely a filly that uh, would appreciate this rain we're getting at the moment and I think it's going to be very testing conditions at Newbury for the lock-in. So, yeah, very exciting. Brilliant. Um, Kieran, I know um, your experience has been pretty well documented in the press and you've done some very um, open and honest interviews in the past, but just for people listening who aren't aware of your story, could you just talk to us a bit about your experience? Yeah, my experience with addiction. um, So basically I tested positive for um, cocaine in November 2018 so sort of you know coming up to two and a half years ago now and my life was um leading up into that day where I tested positive was kind of twists and turns and I didn't really know whether I was coming or going and I was right in the middle of the core of addiction and it took me a long time to see it myself and um sort of accept that I was suffering from addiction. I believe a lot of people around me and closest to me that could see it before I could. Uh, I think that's probably normal. Um, Usually the person suffering from addiction is usually the last person to actually realize it. It kind of just swept up amongst, like sort of in it. Um, But the day it, the day I sort of, breathed a massive sigh of relief as a day I tested positive at Kempton Racecourse. Um, I was on the testing list at Kempton and I went in and I kind of knew that I was going to fail it. So I provided a urine sample and you don't, so how it works is you, you provide the urine sample, but you don't hear for two weeks. So you can imagine how I was feeling for those two weeks while I was going racing in between, not, I, I 
not really knowing what happened next. Anyway, literally on the 14th day, they turned up again at Kempton and told me that I was stood down immediately. And I was still drinking and using in between those sort of 14 days. So when they stood me down immediately, I remember, i never forget getting back into the car and just sitting back into my seat and just being like able to just completely accept and almost just realize this is the day that I can start getting better. It was just a massive sigh of relief. I can't, I can't almost explain the feeling. And um, I very fortunately haven't looked back from that day. What's that um, sort of recovery involved for you? I know you spent a period in rehab. Yeah, so, um, so that, I think it was maybe around the 27th of November, 2018. Um, and I was driving back from Kempton and Paul Struthers rang me from the PGA and Paul has been absolutely incredible and I owe so much to Paul and the PGA um, but he rang me on the way back and he actually told me that my brother and my mum had been on to him I think um, sort of two months before trying to organise a rehab which I knew nothing about um, Anyway, so he gave me two options. He gave me, there was a rehab that was starting in, I think, beginning of January, which was uh, the Sporting Chance Rehab, or there was another rehab that was starting in four days' time that I could have jumped on, which was in Nottingham, a rehab called Bank House, um, which I think they work quite closely with Sporting Chance. So anyway, I, I jumped at the opportunity. So it meant I was going to be in there over Christmas and everything. But at the time, it just didn't really matter. I just needed, I needed it. And so I went four days later, I went to, to rehab and I was in there for 28 days. Um, and it was a very harrowing experience. Like it was a scary thing to sort of, you know, I, I got a friend to actually drop me, up, drop me off there. And I didn't really want my parents to, obviously they offered to take me up. But I just didn't really want to sort of have to say goodbye to them in that sort of way. So uh, I just got a, got a good friend to drop me off. And yeah, I spent 28 days in there. And honestly, it was the best thing I've ever, ever done. And research has shown that having peer-led support for addiction can be very powerful. Did that play a big part in your recovery? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when you go into rehab, I just felt like I needed that foundation. I've been previously to testing positive and what I believe hitting rock bottom. Um, I had been in and out of AA meetings and for a few years, I'd probably been to 150 AA meetings before I actually went to rehab, but I was never really sort of engaging. And I didn't want to be there. And every time I did go to a meeting, I was almost going for my family and for my friends, like, because they wanted me to go. So whenever I went, I was sat at the back of the room. I didn't say a whole lot. And um, I kind of just believed, I, I, always, I knew there was something not normal, as, you know, about my drinking, but I didn't believe I was an, an alcoholic or suffering from addiction. Um, so... When I went into rehab, I almost needed that foundation where I was in a house, I was with loads of other people recovering from addiction, like like-minded people, everyone going through the same experience, but we were all at different stages. So we didn't all start on the same day. So 
there were people that were two weeks into the course that could, you know, could just talk to me and explain what how the uh, the twenty eight days um, how it all worked and. I met some amazing people in there, and not just the, um, not just you know addicts, but the therapists. The um, everyone in there was amazing, and I was by far the youngest person in there. But honestly, I I just needed that foundation where I could. So I tested positive. I didn't need my phone. I could go into this house. I didn't need to speak to anybody, like any press or. I could literally turn off my phone for the month I was in there and just concentrate on my recovery. Did going through that process or any therapy you've had since, has that sort of given you any enlightenment on why you started drinking or taking cocaine? Um, do you know what the pressures were on you that led to that? Yeah, that is a good question. I, um, you know, they try and when they speak to us all in rehab, like people sort of can fall into addiction through a numerous of different ways. And um, it could be, you know, you could have suffered a traumatic event in your life or, and I could really, really couldn't pinpoint anything. I've had the most amazing, loving upbringing, uh, fabulous parents, you know, and very privileged. And I I could not pinpoint anything that sort of, flicked a switch and made me um, sort of the inability to moderate um, sort of any mind altering substance. I think I, I, I've got a very addictive personality. And although I've been clean and sober now for two and a half years, I just, I still have those traits, you know, that addictive personality where I sort of latch onto things, whether it be a new hobby or even like, chocolate or something like that I still have <laughs> traits and it's still in me but um I do think I and I can't I can't I I don't put it down to my job either obviously there's a lot of pressure that comes with you know being a jockey but I honestly believe if I had a nine-to-five job in an office I would I would have gone through the exact same thing and what do you think of the saliva testing that's been brought in for jockeys recently they're doing a two-month pilot and it's they are rapid turnaround tests. It'd be interesting to get your thoughts on those. Yeah, I'm yet to actually do one, but uh, I think it's a fantastic idea. I think it's obvious that um, the urine samples weren't, although they were effective, but they weren't sort of, you know, I think there are a lot of people sort of, um, you know, they could only test sort of 14 jockeys at a time because I think the the process took so long throughout the day. Um, I th- yeah, the saliva testing. I haven't done one yet, so I don't really. Yeah, I can't really, you know, say whether it's a great idea or not. But um, do you think it will help? Um, Paul Swithers has said that he thinks it will help as a sort of deterrent to those in the weighing room. Do you think that would be the case? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, especially if they're doing every jockey um, at each meeting. I suppose it's like a zero tolerance then, isn't it? So like, um, you know, you're gonna get tested. There was always that possibility with the urine sampling that you might not be on the list. So, I mean, speaking past experience, 
I would have tested positive plenty of times, but I just wasn't on the list, you know, so I was always sneaking under the radar. And um, I think we're definitely moving forward and uh, it'd be interesting to see how the saliva testing uh, gets on, but I, de I definitely think we're going the right way. Can you talk to us a bit about the culture in the weighing room? Is it, I mean, you were saying you were getting away with it for quite a long time. Is that, in your opinion, is that widespread or is it more a few cases? Is it, I'm just wondering, is it just people or jockeys in particular doing it recreationally or is it more habitual thing that's part of the culture in the weighing room? Yeah, I don't really know. I think I'm, you know, I was suffering from addiction, so I, I don't, I don't know. Um, there's always that question, isn't there? Like, is is a problem within society or is it a problem within racing? And um, obviously, there's been a few cases that have come up, uh, come out recently, and um, there definitely is a problem within racing. I think it's a very social lifestyle as well as, you know the pressures are extremely high and um, I don't know, I, I I find this really hard to talk about because I, I was, like I said before, it didn't matter whether I had a nine to five job, I would have been the exact same, probably worse. So, I mean, the stats don't lie and it's looking like there is a problem within racing and I, I, or I just think we're going the right way about it at the moment. I think that's a really important point because it's the addiction that's the issue. And it's important, isn't it, that people reach out for support if they are struggling with addiction? Yeah, Tina, I, there is so much support out there. Um, it's just whether you're willing to accept it. I was in that position for a good couple of years where there was always the support out there. I just didn't want to reach out and find it. Um, I've, I get a lot of people within racing try and contact me, whether it be on social media or, um, they come up to me face to face. Um, and I, you know, give them numbers and people to try and get in contact with, or I try and offer support myself. But the, the amount of support I've, um, received has been really, really special and, you know, incredible, you know, whether it be Paul Struthers or people that are, you know, Roger Charlton, my old boss, was hugely supportive and put me in contact with people he knew that had gone through very similar things. And there are people looking out for you. And I think you've just got to accept it. I mean, my parents were hugely supportive. My mum was going to Al-Anon meetings, which were sort of meetings for... Uh, family relatives that had you know I'm sorry a relative that had addiction yeah uh, an addiction issues so she was going to meetings uh, for them and she was she understood it so well but almost they don't really understand unless you're an addict yourself you don't really understand what we're going through like she uh, I, I always think she kind of understands it the most without completely understanding it if you know what I mean and it's nothing to be ashamed of like I was we all know an alcoholic like it's not like it, you're weird you're you know it's not there's so many people that suffer from addiction 
Um, and it's so important to speak to like-minded people, people that have experienced the same things, because yeah, it's very hard to identify. And as soon as you talk to someone that have gone through the same things and you kind of, you identify similarities um, and then you, and then if you can see that they've gone through the similar things that you've gone through and they've come out the other side, that's a massive help. Are you still receiving that kind of support now? Yeah, absolutely. It's a very much an ongoing thing. Um, I'm still a recovering alcoholic. Like I, alcohol doesn't go anywhere. It's still, you know, it, it is everywhere. And I have to frequently remind myself that I am still, you know, an addict and that I can't drink. Um, yeah, it's an ongoing process. It's not just like, people kind of think that oh, you just stop drinking you don't just stop drinking there's a huge process that comes with it and with a lot of support you know from a girlfriend as well and um it's yeah it's an ongoing process but with regular meetings and i my phone book is just full of you know people in recovery so there's lots of lots lots of contacts to be able to speak to and you said that um, being a jockey is a very sort of social environment. Has how has it changed for you since you've become sober? Is it how's that? How do your colleagues sort of react to you? Is it? Uh... Yeah, I suppose my uh, sort of friendship group has become a lot tighter. Um, I am a lot less sociable. Um, I spend a lot of time with my girlfriend and we sort of fill our weekends doing stuff together and spending time with the family. But um, I do social, I do find it, if I'm honest, I do find it hard. I would find it hard to go out to a party where there's sort of alcohol present. And I, whenever we do go out to uh, an event like that, I, I always make sure I have an escape route so I can get away if I need to. But I don't know. I think it is getting easier. Like I said, it's been two, two and a half years now. I think it is getting easier. Um, but I still get that sort of bit of anxiety um, when I see everyone else drinking around me. But yeah, my social, my, you know, I try and find new hobbies. And it's, it, it is a completely different way of life, like compared to what I was used to is you know, my, my life, whenever I got a spare sort of weekend or day off, it was spending it in the pub and being, you know, a very sociable person. Um, and it's just not like that now, but there's so many better ways to spend it. Like, I just completely just, I just appreciate life now, like doing the small things. And uh, I think gratitude's a huge thing and doing things that, you know, appreciating spending time with family, like, especially for those sort of three, four years where I wasn't sort of appreciating them and, you know, the amount of support they offered to me, sort of just trying to show them that, you know, it really didn't mean a lot, you know. It's so um, nice to hear you speak like that. I think there's been so much negative press recently about addiction and drugs and, and you know, you've obviously been through a really tough time, but um, you speak positively about actually your life is so much better thank you yeah life is so much it's just so much easier as well I don't I don't have any of the fear I always use an example of 
it wouldn't have been unusual for me to have been late for work or not turn up for work when I was drinking. And even now, like I think when I'm driving to work and everyone knows I'm sober now. So if I did get caught in traffic and I was 10 minutes late for work, it, I can say I was caught in traffic without them thinking, oh, he was just out last night or something like that. People believe me now, I'm more reliable. And I always use that example because I think that would have been the prime time where people would have just said, oh, Kim was out last night. Do you know what I mean? And what would you say to anyone who is listening and who is struggling with addiction? Please just reach out. I cannot tell you the sort of the pressure and the, just how life has become so much nicer and just easier for me and not only life like my career is sort of propelled again um I I suppose I had quite a good apprenticeship but then obviously it came to a halt but I always kind of believed I'd be able to get it back if I got sober and it's no life suffering from addiction it's, it's actually exhausting and I, I wouldn't wish it upon my worst enemy you know it is it is exhausting and soon as you can just accept it and just reach out for help. I mean, like I said, there's so much help there and going into the rehab really was the best thing for me and just sort of having that foundation and being able to rebuild your, you know, your life, I suppose. Um, I'm always on the phone. I, anyone that talks to me, I'll, you know, I just give my best advice and my experience you know do you uh, get do you get lots of people is that stable staff coming to you or other jockeys who is it that's approaching you for support? yeah like there's a few jockeys lots of people within racing a lot of people uh outside of racing even that have seen some of the things that i've done whether it be on itv or um i mean it, it's it's amazing it's quite scary to see how many people do contact me but it is you know a lot of, I think a lot of people might hold back from trying to reach out to me because they don't want to almost bother me, but they don't understand that by them talking to me actually really helps me as well because it is yeah. almost like a meeting within itself. Like, Yeah, I was going to say, actually, is that part of your process of recovery being so open about your experience with addiction? Yeah, absolutely. By me being able to sort of go over the past, it's just a fresh note. It reminds me of what life was like back in addiction and, you know, that I don't want to go back to the old Kieran. So it's so important for me to, when someone asks, you know, asks some advice and God, it helps me immensely to be able to sort of go over the things that I was going through. And I mean, to, there's been so many people that have, um, I've put in, like, put in contact with people that I know from AA that have been sober for a good few months now and it's, it's very rewarding and it's, you know, it's fantastic to see. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Kieran. You speak so generously and so genuinely. But before you go, you've got to do our, our quick fire five with Lauren. So, Kieran, fill in the blank. I am happiest when? Spending time with my family. When I'm feeling overwhelmed, I... I go fishing. Nice. <laughs> I, found I, like I like that a lot. Are, are you addicted to fishing now? Uh, like it's a lockdown. Th I, yeah, I'm 
literally obsessed with it now and it's only happened since lockdown is it quite a mindful activity fishing from so from like the minute I start fishing my I could be there seven hours and my phone will not come out of my pocket amazing <laughs> completely obsessed yeah whenever I get a spare sort of two three hours I go I live in Hungerford I literally live 20 meters from the canal so I just walk straight down okay third question What's your one top tip for looking after your well-being? Fitness and fresh air. Fresh air. <clears throat> and can you give us a book, a film, or a person, something that's inspired you recently? My mum was extreme, and she, you know, she was going to all these meetings for six months without me even knowing. So, um, yeah, I'd say my mum. Yes, it's a really fair answer to be honest. Final question. Can you give us a horse to follow? Yeah, okay. I rode a horse at Ascot on Friday, a horse called Raw Musketeer. Um, I thought he would he actually finished last, but he was very, very unfit and he'll come on loads for the run. I think he's very well handicapped horse, Raw Musketeer. So I'm really pleased to say that we're joined now by Joe Devereaux, who is clinical lead at Care First. Um, Care First are in partnership with Racing Welfare um, to bring welfare and well-being services to the industry. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome, Lauren. Hi, Joe. Thank you. As Lauren said, thanks for joining us. You're um, welcome. So last year we saw a 20% increase in people being supported by Race and Welfare for addiction. And we just wondered if you could give us a little bit of information about the process with Care First and what happens when people do call the support line for, for support for addiction. Okay. So when people call in uh, to the helpline, uh, you've got a designated number. So we, we know on the helpline that you're uh, racing welfare. Um, so straight away uh, that comes up and uh, everybody who comes in on the um, on the line is treated with the utmost confidentiality. I think that's the most important thing that anybody calling in really needs to be very confident about that actually, you know, once you once you come into care first, we treat you with care and uh, confidentiality. And we do that, you know, I'm not just saying that, we do that because we're, we're, we're professionals. I'm, I'm a professional with the BACP, the British Association for Counselling and Psychotherapy, as are all the counsellors on the helpline. So, um, and we have a code of ethics, which we have to uh, adhere to, as do uh, care first as a an organization with that with BACP too so that's just one way but you know we are all caring professionals so you come through and you will be given definitely support in the moment so you can actually start talking about your issues pretty much straight away and we'll help supporting you right there and then uh, with a, a, a view as we listen to you to see how we're going to help you um, I hope that's helpful <laughs> Yeah, that's really helpful. That um, because it must be quite overwhelming for people when they take that step, um, to actually make the call. Um, and obviously you need to be really reassuring to them in that moment. 
Yeah, for sure, Lauren. You know, it's it's a huge step to make and it's a courageous step to make for anybody. So, uh, you know, and we know that as as professional counsellors and psychotherapists. Uh, so, uh, you know, we hope you land on a safe space and I'm sure you will when you when you do call, when you get the courage to call Care First. And it doesn't matter how how desperate you feel or how ridiculous you feel if you know addictions are across the board in many things so uh, it doesn't matter how um unaware you are you just think there's something wrong but you're checking it out that's absolutely fine too and what advice would you give to people if they do want to call and they perhaps are feeling a little bit of shame or or just can't quite pick up the phone to call um if there's, if there's somebody with you supporting you, and that might be a manager, a supervisor, you know, somebody like that, they can pick up the phone for you. Mm-hmm. And they can say, you know, this is um, Fred, uh, and they're a bit scared to talk to you. And that's fine. And, and we'll say, oh, just hand the phone over. We'll speak to Fred. And then if you don't mind, if you can leave us, then Fred and I can have a private conversation, which is really important um, because we're all hiding things from somebody else in some way or shape. Uh, we don't want to own up to everything in front of uh, anybody. Uh, so uh, that's usually a really useful way of doing it. But we are very skilled, obviously, and in encouraging people uh, when they do come on, if they are a bit um, fragile or, or vulnerable or uh, scared then you know they really just need to say I'm a bit, bit scared I've never done this before mm-hmm. we get that all the time and we really do uh, welcome you and uh, really hold your hand through that process um, so, yeah. do, you, do you feel that people get a sense of relief almost when they've made that step and said those words or let out their worries for that first time You know, Lauren, it's really important. That's a great point you make. It is hard to make that first step. And yes, once people get that sense of, oh, somebody's listening to me, somebody's uh, really uh, believing me and taking note of me, taking me seriously, uh, and somebody really knows I've got a problem and and they're going to start to try and help me right from now. We can't do everything, obviously, in that first call, but we can certainly start a plan in action. And the relief, you know, is is immense sometimes for some people. You know, they'll burst into tears and it's like, we don't mind about tears. (laughs) We can sit there and we will assure you that we're still there. Uh, You cry if you need to or, you know. Uh, and we're also there, you know, it's anxiety comes into play uh, an awful lot with addictions. And some people get a bit uh, really panicky and it's all right. We're there still. We give them, you know, things to do with breathing. So we stay there with them. We might breathe with them for a bit and, and carry on. It, it's a real partnership when you come on the phone. Mm-hmm. You really feel connected into somebody who's uh, uh, really professionally able. Well, it's it's been so reassuring to talk to you, and I'm sure it's um it's been reassuring for anyone listening who wants who wants to give the support line a call. So we do urge anyone struggling with addiction to to get in touch with us. And I think it's also it was really important point you made about it is something we see quite a bit of as 
families getting in touch for people and knowing that they can also get in touch on behalf of other people if they're worried or even if they just need a chat about it and how it's affecting them. Absolutely, Tina. That is so important. Nobody gets turned away uh, from Care First, even if uh, you're a, a family member. We will always still give that that contact of, of um, support in the moment, guidance, advice, signposting. You know, families obviously with addictions are really hugely concerned for uh, the, their loved ones. And, you know, they just might need reassurance too. And we're here there for them. So I'm really pleased to say that we're joined now by Ruth Croft. Ruth is a youth engagement manager for Turning Point. Um, Ruth, thanks so much for being with us today. Could you start by just telling us a bit about your role and a bit about Turning Point? So um, my name is Ruth Croft and yeah, youth engagement manager. Basically, that means I manage the under 25s element of the Turning Point Drug and Alcohol Service across Suffolk. so it does what it says on the tin we work with anybody up to the age of 25 who is using drugs or alcohol um, and wants to know more wants to stop is recognizing it's a problem um, needs someone to talk to or just wants to make some changes learn how to do it more safely Um, so harm minimization Um, so that's what my team do they're an outreach team and they work across the whole of Suffolk the other element of the service is the adult service so that's anybody over the age of 25 up to I don't know I think we've had some 80 year olds in in service and they deal with the same thing anybody who's using drugs or alcohol in a problematic way who wants to make changes so whereas the young person's element may be more educational the adults is normally that they're using problematically it's become impactful on their life and they need to make some changes so they come into service um, for that support. Just thinking about the educational (laughs) element that you mentioned for young people what does that involve? So we work anywhere where there are young people. So we've been into schools and colleges, alternative education providers, children's homes, um, accommodation providers. And what we look at doing is working with groups of young people um, to make sure that they understand the things that they're putting into their body. Quite often, young people will come to us and say, I have used a pill. And you'll say to them, what was that pill? And they'll go, I have no idea. And for us, as you can imagine, as parents, but as adults, you think, how can you put yourself at that risk? And so what we want to do is we want to make sure that we educate young people so that they can make better informed choices. We can't stop every young person from that experimentation because that's kind of part of growing up is that risk taking behaviour. But what we want to stop is young people from getting to the point where it's problematic or to be using drugs and alcohol to be able to cope with something bigger. I read some recent research on drug use and young people and that stated that young people, if they do view drug use as harmful, that they tend to decrease the amount that they use drugs is that something you've seen through your educational programs for young people yeah so 
what we look at is what what is the risk of of young people going to use so we offer universal so universal education is education for everybody so that they have a basic understanding now that education works for those people who are very unlikely to be using drugs it gives them that base knowledge and they're like that fits in with my idea of it was not being something I wanted to do so therefore now I have more reasons not to go down that path the targeted and specialist work that we do looks at those young people who are maybe more at risk of using maybe it's friendship groups or risk of offending behavior and what we do is we target the work to be specific to them so again like you said we look at harm reduction we look at what harm this substance will do what impact it will have on you as a person on your family and on your wider community and by helping people see the negatives it helps people to make those informed choices so like you said they're less likely then to use because they understand the risks not just physical but mental and societal um that the drugs have on them can you talk a bit more about that sort of impact on families on the on the wider community i think in racing um there's quite often an attitude that everyone knows that drugs are wrong and um you know, if you're a jockey, you're going to get penalised if you get caught. But the sort of general attitude is it's just a sort of recreational thing. Um, and I'm not sure that it's sort of the consequences of that are really taken on board. Could you just talk about that a bit more? So we have worked with young people who could be using as little as one can of beer, but the impact on the family is huge because there is a level of fear, there's a level of guilt, and there's a level of um, misunderstanding. When we're talking about the impact on families, we're talking about the fact families have lost the ability to communicate well with each other so there's secrets and secrets always lead to somebody feeling very sad very um, on the periphery and much more like an outsider or in their own family we work with young people who are so lonely because they don't feel that anybody in their family can hear them and they're screaming in their heads and screaming through their behaviors and screaming through their drug use but they're not being heard in a way that makes them feel anyone's listening we hear from the other side of it, we hear parents who just don't know what to do. They've got a young person who's, as they would put it, acting out, who's staying out late at night, who's pushing the boundaries, who's behaving in a way that they don't think is appropriate, but they don't know then how to communicate with each other in a way that both sides hear it. So we'll support parents not only through Suffolk Family Carers, but also through the parenting hubs across the county to look at um, parenting courses so that they can then learn ways to talk to their children. Because quite often as a parent, you say, don't do that. But what you need to do is get back to the kind of the connection of, of the when you did that it made me feel because that's showing the you that the consequences of it so young people unfortunately drug users um might get to a point where if they haven't got money for drugs they could end up selling their belongings other people's belongings or stealing money and um, quite often that can go with some coercion so we might find young people acting out towards their parents and demanding money there have been situations we work with young people who are involved with youth fending or youth justice um, and there might be times where that has led to a level of violence um, so young so young people becoming threatening towards their parents because they are 
desperate to get money for their drugs or alcohol. So you can imagine within a family situation, if you've got um, an, a number of children and your child is becoming violent within the home, you have to look at how you safeguard the the other children. So it could mean that that young person loses their accommodation. Um, there's a huge amount of guilt then caught up on that of, of showing their siblings the negative impact and it can splinter families so we've we find that it might be a mum who is dealing with all of this kind of a, emotional baggage and a, and a dad who hasn't got the ability to communicate so just kind of shuts himself off not only from that child but the other children in the family so um that lack of communication can be really impactful. And a lot of it stems from fear. If your child is going out there and involving themselves in taking lots of drugs or drinking lots of alcohol, and they're putting themselves at risk, as a parent, the first thing you're gonna do is try and explain your fear. But when we try and explain fear, it normally comes from a point of anger because we want them to be safe. And the only way we know how to be, get them to be safe is to pull them to us and hold them until they stop wriggling. So for teenagers that's almost the worst thing you can do because the closer you want them to be the further they're going to pull away so by offering parents that safe space to talk we can help them have conversations around how their substance misuse is making the parents feel and putting in ground rules and boundaries that's the most important thing and Ruth a lot of young people coming into racing sort of starting out in their first jobs in the main racing centres in Newmarket, Lambourne up in the north in Midland, Moulton, are away from home for the first time and don't have that um, parental influence sort of seven days a week. Um, and obviously that situation, there's sort of peer pressure and, and what sort of support or what's needed in that situation to try and educate and support those young people? I think it's the boundary setting, the rule setting, but that being led by the young people. I also think it's about clear and open conversation. So I know that when I went off to university gaily, that um, it's big and it's scary and you don't want anyone to know that. But having a, an adult or somebody in that position to talk to who's going to be non-judgmental, who's going to not maybe have all of the answers, but maybe support you to go and find them, who's going to say sounds like a really terrible place to be what do you want to do next so open communication is hugely important boundaries are hugely important so people can use that as a safety net if you put a lot of young people together like you said peer pressure is a huge thing so when we work with young people we might teach them it's okay to sort of use your mum a little bit so if you're going out with your mates and they're going oh go and have another beer and they're like no my mum told me that I have to be home at this time now their mum might not have said that at all but most people have got a little bit of fear about their mums haven't they so it's about being able to give them those distraction delay techniques as well so that they can still participate but do it in a way that makes them feel in control in situations where we have lots of young people together there's always kind of that one-upmanship and, and top dog about it so it's maybe about sometimes in those situations using what is that normal societal model and creating um, like house leaders so that there is those people who are your peers who are a positive influence who are someone who can go there and be the mediator in those situations but is also a safe ear to be able to listen 
That's one of the aims of the mental health first aid training courses that Racing Welfare provide. And one of the targets is to have a mental health first aider in each yard who would be able to help recognise those signs and, and be someone who would be that sort of positive influence or someone to turn to. Brilliant. Because as we said, I always say to my team, substance misuse might only be the corner piece of a jigsaw you need to look at the whole picture to work out whether where that piece fits and so by looking at that from a mental health position if you have people who are emotionally struggling and filling that void with drugs or alcohol you're going to pick it up early but you're also going to pick it up in a really non-judgmental way and teach them skills to fill that void that don't rely on a deficit a deficit of drugs and alcohol you're going to say okay we're going to reef we're going to build some stronger foundation so that in the future going forward you don't feel as wobbly when things get bad how quickly can that um if there are sort of other issues going on that sort of recreational use turn into something more serious it will be dependent on individuals so we might have some young people who come in and they can have only been using for a few months but they've become very entrenched in their behaviors um, because there aren't any boundaries and not maybe as many people checking up on them there's not a structure around them in the same way and so there's a bit of a free-for-all they can spend a lot more time practicing their drug use and become in, entrenched in it quite often it also depends on the drugs that are being used um, <clears throat> some young people might find a specific drug that really has the effect that they're looking for and so they can become very dependent on it in a quite short space of time we've had um across suffolk a number of young people who have started misusing benzodiazepines so in old money what would be valium so it's a short acting anti-anxiety medication well if you're a young person in today's society and actually the world makes you a little bit anxious covid school boys girls um everything produces that little level of fear in you then taking one tiny pill that stops that for a short period of time you can imagine psychologically that becomes something that you want to look for and those young people that are becoming entrenched are you seeing them getting involved um in county lines how serious is is it so within our team we see young people who are involved in um drug use and exploitation um, which counts as the, the as we talk about county lines so we see a number of, we see young people who are being exploited whether it's um, physically or sexually to be involved in that so there's drug use and drug behaviors involved so it could be that you're talking about young girls who are being groomed by being offered drugs or alcohol to be, put them into situations where they're more vulnerable to sexual exploitation we deal with some young people who are the sellers of drugs so your class a drug sellers and they will be in service with us because they're using substances themselves not normally the substances they sell but because of the horrific things that they have to do to be involved in a in a county lines and the risks they put themselves under they'll be using substances such as alcohol or cannabis to block out those horrid situations when you're talking to young people it sounds really lonely to be caught up in that you can be in a room full of people surrounded but actually no one's got your back no one's keeping you safe and no one's looking out for you 
and to be able to cope with that they can be misusing substances on top of of whatever else they're doing what's actually being done to tackle it because you know that could affect a lot of people in racing as well Suffolk we are um there has been a uh, county lines and gangs and groups um policy and procedure in place for a few years now probably coming up to four um and on the back of that there's been specific teams that are multidisciplinary teams who look at supporting young people um educationally um and support wise to help them come out of those gangs to help them come out get over those situations and move away from those dangerous situations so moving forward there are going to be two um gangs and county line hubs one based across in the west and one based in the Ipswich area and again they'll have specific workers who will look at supporting young people who were caught up in this horrible situation to make changes and find a way out. Thanks so much to all our guests today it's been a really interesting one for me Tina I don't know about you I think you know quite often on the podcast we're talking about things that we've got personal experience of and um, this is different and really eye-opening. Yeah really eye-opening and you know Kieran was talking about rehab and how harrowing it was and you know, his mum sounds like an absolute legend as well, doesn't she? Because she sounds like she was an absolutely huge support. Um, but also saying that rehab's the best thing that he has ever, ever done. And that sort of relief that he felt when when he got that positive yeah. test back, that relief that he could just go and get better. So he is, he, he's just so genuine, isn't he? Yeah. He taught us so genuinely and I think... I think that really comes across and it can be really powerful for other people struggling with addiction to hear that story. Yeah, and I hope anyone listening that did hear that and also heard the reassurance of Joe talking about the support line that, that you are encouraged to call. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's there's people who want to help on the other end of the line and they that's what they are there for. That's what they do for, for a living and they're there to help and they do care and they're again as well very genuine so we hope that that will encourage people to come forward and get support from race and welfare and if you want to get support the best thing is to call the racing support line yes yeah, so you can call racing support line 24 hours a day on 0800 6300 it was um and it was great to hear from ruth croft from turning point um and just interesting to hear about the impact on families and around that educational piece as well. I think there's a lot to be done in racing and educating people more about looking out for those signs of someone who might be starting to struggle with any type of addiction um, and just education around the impacts of addiction. Yeah, around addiction and also the county lines that she talked about as well yeah. because that's it's been a huge increase in in young people getting involved with county lines and and to hear that oh, it's quite difficult to hear isn't it really yeah. you know absolutely and as parents of young children at the moment kind of looking forward to when they're in their teenage years I've got a son who's mad keen to be a jockey and you know just hope that 
kind of attitudes in the situation might have changed by the time he comes into it because it was really moving to hear what Ruth was talking about yeah about especially bringing in that education at a very young age because mm. she took she works with with young people aged up to 25 and so yeah it was interesting to hear the ways that they they go about sort of prevention as well as treating those who mm. are starting to struggle with addiction as well yeah so I hope you all found that as interesting and beneficial as we did and um we'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode in the meantime if anyone listening has got any feedback or ideas for themes or guests that you'd like to hear from in the future do please get in touch we'd love your opinion on what's working or what isn't working and you can that's a more important part <laughs> yeah you can contact us on podcast at racingwelfare.co.uk and we'll see you next time bye